You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to FHUS.org. Enjoy. All right. It's great to see you guys this morning. Um, How many of you enjoyed part one of the story? Yeah. Um, If you have not seen part one of this, uh, I highly, highly encourage you, go to our YouTube channel, Freedom House US, and check it out. Uh, It will seriously bless your life. It will change the way that you see the narrative of scripture. Uh, What I'm going to do is kind of do a, a really brief review of what it is that we talked about last time. But seriously, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It is like something even for me that as I studied it out and continue to study it out, it's something that continues to bless me and continues to really move me deeply as I've been like really meditating on it and praying into it and reading about it. So seriously, it continues to bless me. It'll continue to bless you. So go check it out, uh, watch it, and that'll help give some further background for what we're talking about today. So to review what we talked about last time, um, there were two main narratives that we examined, and I set out to actually cover, you know, the, the whole story of the Bible in one message. And uh, the basic idea is that throughout biblical history, God is continuing to get closer, closer and closer, and he's continuing to get better. And now remember, it's not that God is actually getting better because, you know, there's this idea that goes around, you hear people say like, oh yeah, the God of the Old Testament was terrible and the God of the New Testament's great. But, uh, you know, like, man, look at this schizophrenic God, you know, who's like over here doing these crazy things in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, he's like totally different. But actually, no, that's, it's not actually the case. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. He's eternal right? But it's that man's understanding and ability to relate to God is changing throughout scripture, throughout biblical history. And we saw that uh, because God is always willing to humble himself, to meet man where man is at, no matter how broken man is, this is what actually determined the way in which God related to man throughout history. Because he saw man in his brokenness, within his cultural context, God says, I'm willing to meet you there where you're at. Even if it means that people are going to call me a lunatic in the 20th century, I'm willing to do that to allow people to misunderstand me for the sake of meeting you where you're at because I know it's what you need. Do you see the goodness of God? When we understand how to frame it, when we understand how to see it from his perspective, it brings an illumination to our understanding and helps us to see God truly is good. Don't allow our 21st century Western civilization mentality to look back upon uh, upon the culture of ancient Mesopotamia and wag our fingers in self-righteousness and say, we know better than you, right? When when we understand the culture that they came out of and see that God was actually presenting his goodness in a way that was relevant to them. Okay, so we looked at uh, kind of breaking it down in very broad strokes, starting with Adam and Eve to Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Paul, and looking at what were the ways that God revealed himself? What were the ways that God progressively began to demonstrate his true character and nature? And so, of course, with Adam and Eve, we saw that, you know, man was in the garden with God, and there was no separation. There was no need for any attempt to try to please God. Man and God were living in perfect harmony. It says they walked with God in the cool of the day, right? And so uh, they enjoyed close, intimate fellowship. They enjoyed uh, deep intimacy and relationship. And God was as close as close can be. 
They dwelt together. But as we know, the story goes that sin entered the world. And as sin took place, it brought a separation between the realm of God and the realm of man. God can no longer dwell uh, as close to man as he originally desired because sin brought that separation. And so because of that separation, uh, man was cast out of the Garden of Eden, which we said was basically, it was, it was heaven on earth, right? So, so man and God interacted together within earth and heaven as one, and there was separation. And so then after many years had passed, we got to the time of Abraham. And by the time we reach Abraham's day and age, God was so far separated from the mind and the life of mankind. They'd forgotten who God was. They'd begun to serve other gods. They'd begun to serve idols. And uh, then now they had this idea of, okay, we need to please the gods, but the gods are far away. They're not speaking. We don't know how to please them. We don't know what we need to do. So they started doing these various things like cutting themselves and flogging themselves in order to please the gods and in order to get favor so that they would get rain and that they would not die. The problem was they didn't know how many times to cut themselves to make sure that God was happy with them. So the one ancient Sumerian cult decided, well, we'll just keep cutting until it rains and hope that that's enough, right? <laughs> and so that that's what they did. And then uh, how do you know how much to sacrifice? Well, they said, well, since we don't know how much to sacrifice and we want to make sure that we sacrifice enough, how about we give our very best? And uh, God certainly can't reject that. And so they started sacrificing all of their firstborn children. And that was the culture that they lived in. So you have to understand when Abraham comes to God and God suddenly reveals himself, first of all, God's actually speaking. Well, that's a new, right? Okay, God, well, how do I please you? And he says, mutilate yourself. Well, that's normal. What is what is it you want me to do? How many times do I mutilate myself? Just once, one circumcision, that's it. You can only circumcise once. We look at that now in our 21st century mindset as this is brutal, this is barbaric, this is primitive, but to Abraham, it was God's mercy. You mean I don't have to keep cutting until it rains? I can just do it once and put it out of my mind? That's amazing. It's a revolutionary idea. And then when God says, hey, I want you to take your firstborn son and I want you to go and sacrifice him on this mountain, Abraham's like, well, okay, that makes sense. This is my culture that I live in. So he goes to take Isaac and God stops him and says, wait, no, actually I'm better than that. Sacrifice an animal, that's good enough. To us, again, in our mindset, we look at it like, sacrifice animals, you're crazy. And why would God do this? But you see, he was meeting Abraham where he was at. He wanted to burn into Abraham's mind the fact that animals instead of kids, animals instead of kids, I'm that good. Because that's the culture he was in. We look at it as, why would God ask somebody to sacrifice their kid? No, the other gods were asking people to sacrifice their kids. God wanted to make sure Abraham knew, that's not me. Do you understand the goodness of God? Do you understand the way that people would have interpreted in their time, in their day and age, the goodness of God? Listen, can you imagine, I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of somebody during the time of Abraham, during the time of Moses. Imagine you're a new family, right? You you're, uh, you're, and your spouse, you just got married and you're about to have your first kid and you have to think through this process of this is my throwaway child who I better not get too attached to because I'm going to have to sacrifice them to make sure that we get rain. That's the life they lived. This is the realm in which, like, this was their whole paradigm. This was their way of life. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the celebration of receiving a revelation of, you mean animals instead of my son? 
You mean animals instead of my daughter? You mean we don't have to do this anymore? It was a completely revolutionary idea. And for anyone to say otherwise, they completely miss the entire narrative of what God was doing throughout history. He's good. He's so much better than we give him credit for. He's so much better than we ever thought possible. And then by the time we get to Moses, Moses is like, okay, Moses goes and meets with God and God says, you know what, Moses, I'm so good. Here's what I'm going to do. You had no idea how to please me, except that you have to make sacrifices every time that something goes wrong in your life. And every time you sin, every time you have regrets, you have to make these sacrifices. Well, I'm telling you that uh, here, I'm going to give you a full list of ways to know when you're supposed to sacrifice and when you don't need to sacrifice. In fact, I'll show you exactly what sacrifices to make, how to make them, how to know whether you're clean or unclean, how to make yourself clean if you're unclean, how to know when to come into my presence, how to know uh, when you're not supposed to come into my presence, how to know whether you're pleasing me or you're not pleasing me. In fact, I'll make it so crystal clear. I'll give you every single rule that you'll ever need in order to figure it out. And, and that's my goodness for you. Because for them in that time, they didn't know how to please God. They didn't know what they were doing. So for them to receive this, in Deuteronomy, we read and it said, what nation is so good as to be giving you such a righteous set of laws and decrees? What nation is so great as to have a God who is so close to them that when they pray to him, he is near like our God? You see, the cultures in that day and age, they would have been jealous in fact, that's the whole purpose why God did this is he says that the other nations may look upon you and may know what it is like to serve Yahweh. That they would be jealous at the righteous laws and decrees that I'm giving you today because they still have to sacrifice their kids. Do you see, do you understand the nature of what God was doing? This is the goodness of God. So when we place ourselves in their shoes and we understand how scripture is evolving and how God was progressively demonstrating his character and his goodness to these people in their way of approaching and understanding, he was meeting them where they're at in their brokenness. It completely transforms the way that we understand the Old Testament and the character of God. We get to Jesus Right? So God had moved from being somewhere up in the sky, I guess, for Abraham's time. And in Moses' time, he moved closer into a tent where he was uh, able to meet with the, the high priest and be near his people. By the time he's uh, in the time of Jesus, he's in flesh, dwelling amongst mankind as a man. And now we're doing away with the law. There's no more sacrifices. Jesus is the sacrifice. By the time we get to Paul, Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit that God may dwell within you in your midst that he's even closer than ever before. He's actually part of you now. He lives within you. He's closer, he's better. And we, we get this understanding that the New Testament authors finally started getting it. They're like, wait, are you telling me that God is like Jesus? Wait, not only that, that he's exactly like Jesus, not just kind of, but that Jesus is the full, complete representation of who God is. Not only that, but God had always been like Jesus from the very beginning. We did not know that before, but now we do. That is the New Testament in a nutshell. That is the, the, the understanding of the full culmination of who God is, is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you read through the New Testament, the writers are hammering this idea over and over and over and over again to say, don't you get it? God is Jesus. This is who God is. Jesus was even saying, haven't you uh, seen me by now, Philip? When you see me, you've seen the Father, right? That is the picture of who God is. 
When you look at the Old Testament, you've got to frame it through, okay, wait, but I know God is like Jesus. So when I understand God is like Jesus and I understand the culture of the Old Testament, I can see what God is doing to progressively show who he is. Because he's meeting people at a place of bondage. Of, they've just come out of slavery. They've come out of this, you know, really horribly broken culture in ancient Mesopotamia where, listen, they wouldn't believe it unless God showed them personally. He had to walk them through step by step to say, I know that you can't handle the fullness of who I am. So I'll show you little by little so that you'll actually believe it. And it's, come on, we know that to be true. We still have a hard time believing the goodness of God today, right? And if we still have a hard time believing the goodness of God, how much more them in their culture with what they're dealing with, right? God cares more about our understanding of him than the pagan world. He says, I'm willing to allow myself to be misunderstood so that I can meet you where you're at because I know it's what you need. That's how good he is. So listen, and we, we kind of ended it with this, the real gospel. And I said, maybe you've heard. God created man, but didn't foresee that man was going to sin. So God got mad and told us to kill animals, but it didn't work. So God came up with a plan to send his son on a suicide mission so he could kill his son so he wouldn't be angry at us anymore. And then it worked. Join us, right? But that's filled with so many half-truths that misunderstand the nature of the narrative of what God was doing. Because the real story is so much better. God created man. He foresaw human rebellion, loved his creation enough not to destroy it, but to fix the whole broken thing before it started. Uh, but his broken creation wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he loved us enough to enter the broken story of creation himself, allow it to kill him so that he could turn his own murder around for the redemption of the very creation that killed him, and then invite that creation to partner with him to continue fixing the brokenness around it. That's the gospel. It's good news indeed. Hallelujah. It's good news. So, what I wanted to do today is to jump off of that. And I want to bring in two new focuses. They're not really new, but we're going to zoom in a little bit on one of these concepts that, that we were unpacking in the last uh, message. That one, God is, first of all, he's actually forgiving and removing our sins. Like that's actually what's happening. But not only that, there's a second parallel thing that's happening at the same time, which is that God is choosing to make a grand public display of removing our sins just for the sake of our own conscience. Just for the sake of our own conscience. And that sounds kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever, right? But, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how much God cares about this and how much it matters. Because you see, there's a difference between cleansing our sin and cleansing, cleansing our conscience of the guilt of sin. You see, because again, like we said last time, right? How many of you know that you're bought by the blood of Jesus? You're, you know, you're clean. He washed your blood. You know, he, he washed your sins away by his blood. You're forgiven. We all know that, right? Yet, how many of us have felt the weight of guilt about something in the past few weeks, right? It's like, yeah, we still feel it. We still feel the weight of the guilt of sin and condemnation and shame that plagues us, right? There's two different things. And this is where we get weird questions like this, right? Where, you know, how many of you have heard this? Well, couldn't God just like get over it? Couldn't he just say, yeah, whatever, water under the bridge, you know? Like, why does God have to be so petty that he has to kill his son to take care of it all? And you're like, that makes me really uncomfortable because I know that, you know, it had to happen, but I'm not sure why. And, and like, I guess he could have just gotten over it, like, why is God so petty? You know, like, and, and it gets us in this confusion because we don't understand the narrative of scripture and we don't understand what God's doing. 
you see? And, and so then we think like, oh yeah, religion is so weird, right? But, but you have to understand, God was meeting man where man was at. He was saying, I know what you need, and I know that not only do I want to take away your sin, but I want you to be convinced that I've taken away your sin, so that your conscience is clear before me. Because God cares about your conscience. He cares about you not just being free from sin, but feeling like you're free from sin. Because that matters. Because how many of you know that when you come before God and you try to have a nice prayer time in the secret place and come into the most holy place in prayer time with God, you want to be intimate with him, but you have something weighing on your conscience that you just can't do it. And it's not because something's wrong with God, it's because something's wrong with the way that we're seeing God. It's something wrong with the way that we're seeing ourselves. It's something wrong with the way that we're believing the sacrifice of Christ because it's done already. But because we don't believe it, because we still carry that guilt and the, in our conscience, it actually hinders us from coming before God because we feel like we still have to flog ourselves. We still feel like we have to drag our sacrifice to the altar. We still feel like we have to cut and cut and cut until we feel bad enough for long enough that God says it's enough. Come on. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So this is why God began to do uh, began to do all these things. So let's take a look. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Hallelujah. <laughs> Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now I want to show you, the words justified and saved are two different things. Now in our American, you know, churchianity culture, we've, we've done a disservice to the original understanding of these words because we've taken all this stuff and lumped it into one word, salvation. We've said, oh, you're saved. Meaning, right, everybody probably has a similar understanding of this. When you're saved, you're going to heaven someday, right? That's like the thing that we all care about. Am I going to heaven someday? right? Well, listen, justified and saved mean two different things. Justified means you're going to heaven someday. It means you're in right standing with God. It means that when you stand before God, God says, you're good, right? Like everything's good, taken care of, right? Uh, Derek Prince says, justified means just as if I'd never sinned, right? Remember that, just as if I'd never sinned means that you're, you're cleansed, you're washed, you're forgiven, everything's good, done deal, right? That's justified. So with your heart, you believe, meaning you have faith in your heart, and faith justifies you. Just like Abraham, right? He had faith, believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Faith means you're righteous, you're saved, or you're justified. But the word saved in Greek is the word soteria, which is the same word that we use to translate as deliverance. In fact, that word soteria, when you read the original Greek uh, meaning, it means delivered from your enemies. That's what delivered means, which means there's two things happening. Because it says in verse 11, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Put to shame. Now you can still be justified and feel shame. You can still be washed by the blood and feel the weight of guilt on your conscience, right? So what does Paul say? He says, you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he's writing to believers. They're justified, they're going to heaven, but they still need deliverance in their life. What? Deliverance from their enemy. 
Deliverance from the weight and the guilt of the shame and the condemnation that the accuser brings against them. You see, this is why when we are justified, we still, there's two things happening. One, we're actually justified. Two, we're being free from the weight of our conscience that speaks against us, even though we're already justified. It's two things. God cares about both. They're both important. They're both necessary. God cares about your conscience. He cares about how you feel about your condition. Not just the fact that you are saved, but that you feel that you're saved. He cares about that. Okay, notice the emphasis on your feeling. You'll never be put to shame. So watch this. We're going to, in just a minute, we're going to start opening up a bunch of scripture from Hebrews. But I want to show you, as we looked at last time, you know, I want you to read this and I want you to put yourself in there because it's easy to read this and think of just the Hebrews that it was being written to as like, yeah, yeah, we don't need animal sacrifice anymore. Fine. I'm not doing animal sacrifice in my life. So like, this is cool to read about, but it doesn't really mean anything for me. I already know I got Jesus, right? Like it's easy for us to do that, but I don't want you to read it that way because we all have a ritual for dealing with our own regret. Every one of us, we have a ritual. We all do it, right? You know, some people, they use drugs, they use alcohol to deal with their regret. Some people use recreation. You know, probably one of the most common is that we go into our prayer closet and we cry out, oh God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Well, I flog myself and cut myself for long enough until I feel bad enough for long enough and God says it's enough. Or maybe you do this. Maybe you carry that with you and failing to come into God's presence because you just think that he's still mad at you and then you wait until you get to come and respond to a prayer line and feel the anointing and then you say, because I felt the anointing, God is no longer mad with me and now I can go and pray and have a good time because I got ministered to at an altar call. Oh, somebody prayed for me. Oh, I cried and I felt, oh God, I do have your presence. Oh yeah, okay. Come on. As if... The only way we can be saved is if we accept Jesus and respond to every altar call when we don't feel good enough, right? Or did Jesus actually do the right thing on the cross and finish the work? Come on. What's your ritual for dealing with your regret? That's what, listen, that's what I want you to picture. Every time it talks about animal sacrifice, every time it talks about, you know, doing all those things and how we don't need to do that anymore because we have the blood of Christ. I want you to input your own personal ritual for dealing with your regret and what that looks like for you because we all have it we all do and the author of hebrews is desperately trying to get us to move on from that in hebrews 6 he even says look guys like this is milk i'm tired of giving you milk i want to give you meat like this is like the first foundational doctrine the first one it says repentance from dead works you know what another translation says repentance from useless rituals what's your useless ritual Oh God, oh God, oh God. Repent from those. It's like first base. Let's move on from that. I want to get farther than that. I want to move on to the meat. I want to like, there's more important things to do, guys. This is why, look, how many of you are so deathly afraid of getting somebody to ask you the question, hey, how's your prayer life? (laughs) It's like the scariest question of all, right? Because what's everybody's response? Oh, it's not where I want it to be. Oh, yeah, I know I should be praying more. Oh, I know I should be worshiping more. Oh, I know I, know I, I just, you know, I, I know I should be doing more. Come on. We all feel that. That's like the number one most common response is, 
I should be doing more. I'm not doing enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what's our gut instinct reaction when we think of our prayer life? Guilt, shame, not doing enough, not faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God's not saying, oh, with enough prayer, you can please me. He's saying, if you just do it in faith, then it'll work. (laughs) If you just do it in faith, believing that I'm here and that the sacrifice of my son was already enough, then it'll work. But that's how you come into my presence, by faith. Boldly approach the throne of grace, right? Look, God wants repentance, not penance. There's nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament where I can see God asking for penance, just repentance. He says, just turn. Stop flogging yourself. It doesn't do anything anyway. No penance, just repentance. Just turn. It's done. So with that, I want you to take that with us as we go through. Let's, let's, let's read a, a, we're going to read a significant portion of scripture here, okay? Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room in that once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. What does that mean? It means the way into actual true intimacy with God still hasn't really been made yet. Why? It says, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices of the old covenant, they were being offered. They were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience. They're only a matter of food and drink in various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order or the new covenant. It seems that the way into the most holy place depends upon both cleansing your actual sin and your conscience. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from useless rituals? Do you see When you understand the culture and you understand what's actually taking place, it makes it come to life in a totally new way. He cleansed our consciences from useless rituals, our useless rituals that we use day after day to make ourselves feel better so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Praise God. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all. Once for all at the culmination of the ages, meaning everything in all history was building towards this one moment, the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed 
once to take away the sins of many. And he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, meaning deliverance to those who are waiting for him. Do you see this? Chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never read the things that you do in your life to satisfy your own regret. They can never, by these same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Nothing you do can make you perfect enough to draw into worship. Only Christ. Only faith in Christ. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have, been, uh, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have what? Felt guilty in their conscience for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. It's impossible for your little ritual of regret to take away your sin. Impossible. So stop doing it. Listen, it says there in verse 3, all it does is just remind you of your sin. All it does is re-crucify Christ all over again. What's the point? Did he not finish it? Did he not do it? Was it not enough that you have to go and flog yourself in your prayer closet? Was it not enough? This is what we do. Listen, crying out for hours and hours and hours, it's not going to do anything. The only thing that does it is when you actually believe that Christ was enough. When you believe that it was enough, that's faith. That's what it means to put faith in Christ, to believe, yes, it was enough, and I don't have to do this anymore. Continuing verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 19 is my favorite part. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place, you have confidence. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. You have confidence by his blood to come into the presence of the Lord. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, yes, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And what? With the full assurance that faith brings. Not the full assurance that my ritual has brought me because I felt bad enough for long enough. Not because I went to an altar call with my guilt and shame and going, oh, 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 and somebody laid hands on me and I felt the anointing and that means I must be better now. No, by faith, by faith in his blood. It's back to basics, guys. The full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to what? Cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. He's saying, look, you profess it, but live for it. Live as if it's true. Don't just say it, live like you believe it. What would your life look like if you lived as if you believed it fully? Where are you living in a way that shows that you don't fully believe it? Where does your life not show? Where can somebody look at your life and say, I don't think you really believe it? 
Live like you believe it. Faith without works is dead. You can say, I believe, I believe. Are you living like it? Are you entering your prayer closet like you believe it's true? Now, I want to show you this. God cares so much about making sure that we know it. Not just that he did it, but making sure we know that he did it. That he telegraphed this whole thing. I mean, he really telegraphed it. So there's something in Hebrew culture called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard of it. It's called the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was this really special day. It was that once a year, right? Once a year, they would make the one sacrifice in order to wash and cover all the sins of all the people of all the nation for the whole year, okay? Now, the way I want you to think about this is not just like, oh, my sins, because when we say, oh, my sins, we think of all the big stuff, right? The Ten Commandments stuff, all the big things. I want you to think of it like this. What are the regrets that you carry? The things that 99 out of 100 times you did the right thing, but the one time you did the thing that, that just keeps coming back in your mind that, that every once in a while will pop up and make you feel like, man, I wish I didn't do that. The one thing that, that you keep getting reminded of, the one thing where if you had a do-over, you'd take it. You say, I wish I would have done that differently. And you still think about it, like it still comes back to you, and it's still like, man, I wish I did it differently, but praise the Lord. I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> the regrets, you know, we're talking full scale, little to big, right? Yom Kippur was the day when all that stuff was given up. It was like, we get to get rid of it. We get, to, we get to put it in this big bucket and dump it out and say we're starting fresh and clean completely, which means you don't have to think about it anymore. Listen, this is Old Testament. This is, this is God's goodness, even then, right? So, uh, so here's, here's what they would do. Uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 6. So again, place yourself. This is in the time of the law, right, with Moses. Aaron is to offer the bull, for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, then he is to take two goats, everybody say two goats, and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Okay. There's two goats. One goat is for the Lord and one is called the scapegoat. Now the word scapegoat in Hebrew is a little more complicated than that. The Hebrew word is azazel. Everyone say azazel. azazel. One more time. Azazel. Okay, Azazel means take him away. It's kind of weird, right? Now, this doesn't translate well into English because you say, okay, one goat is for the Lord and the other goat is for the take him away. (laughs) So they didn't know what to do. They're like, "Um, we'll just call it the scapegoat, like the escaping goat. Take him away. He escapes, right? Because what they would do is they they would take these goats and they would lay their hands on the goats and they would impart the sins of all the people and one would die and the other one would escape as we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit, but, uh, but that's what would happen. And so it's the goat that escaped, the scapegoat. That's where we get this term, right? Um, but this word really means take him away. Another uh, translation of this word actually means a weapon in the hand of the enemy. And that makes sense, right? Because what's the weapon in the hand of the enemy? He's the great accuser. So it's basically saying you're taking away all of the things, the ammunition that the enemy would use to bring to, act, to accuse you. It's the things that he uses to prosecute you in court. It's the things that he, that he comes to flog you with and to hit you in your conscience and say, see what you did, see what you did, see what you did, see what you could have done, see what you didn't do. Right? The weapon in the hand of the enemy, Azazel. So 
One goat receives all the things that the enemy wants to use against you, and, uh, and it escapes. Now, on this day, on Yom Kippur, this is the one day absolutely no work can be done. Ah, you can't do anything. Because God wanted to really make sure that you understood that nothing that you did caused your sins to be taken away for that year. He wanted to make sure that you knew that it was just because he's good. Old Testament, guys, come on. Do you see? Like, even in the Old Testament, he's trying to get you like, do you see I'm good? Please see that I'm good. So let's look at this. In chapter 16, verse 9, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering, but the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat, Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Okay, so we're going to look at both of these, the goat for the Lord and the goat for Azazel. So the goat for the Lord. Now, before I go into this, I want you to have this perspective. I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Um, God was basically, you know, telegraphing everything that he was doing because when you read this, Jesus actually represented Yom Kippur. It was like, like the New Testament writers had this revelation like, wait, are you saying that Jesus was actually one giant Yom Kippur ritual? Like one cosmic Yom Kippur ritual for all history, for all people, for all time? Like, whoa, like, like this is the day when God's forgiving everything. He's just forgetting it all. Like, like, whoa, God is so good. Like, like when you see everything that Jesus is doing, Jesus is enacting Yom Kippur himself. Like it's wild because God wanted to make sure that people knew that he was doing it, that they could see it in a way that, un that they understood because he cares about their conscience. Okay. Watch this. Okay, so here's the goat for the Lord. The first thing they would do is the goat for the Lord was the thing that was done in, hid in, in hiding, in private. So God, the, the, the priest would take the goat and would bring it into the tabernacle outside of public view. Nobody could see what was going on, right? Which is, this is what I meant when I said like Jesus was uh, sacrificed. You know, it says that uh, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, right? Like God actually like, you know, we say, can he just get over it? Well, he did. Like he, before the foundation of the world, he already did. He, he already slayed Jesus at the foundation of the world. You know, God is outside of time. We see everything is linear. It's like, oh, at this point, God decided to forget it all. No, like he's outside of the whole thing. It's like, guys, I'm already taking care of it. I just decided to show you at this point in history. <laughs> you know, like he's already, he already had it in mind before you were a thought, you know, like he already took care of it. But he didn't just want to take care of it. He wanted to show you that he took care of it. Because he cares enough about your perspective. He cares enough about your feelings. So, so this goat was the goat that was like hidden from view. Okay? This is where the actual blood is shed. So away from public view, he goes and he brings this goat in there. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, the writer of Hebrews knew this because he says in Hebrews chapter 9, which we read earlier, um, chapter, uh, verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, meaning all of the temple fixings, you know, like the, the lampstand and the censer bowl and all the stuff, right? Uh, you cleanse it with blood. It says, but the heavenly things themselves were cleansed with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear before us in God's presence. So he's saying, look, Jesus actually did the real sacrifice in heaven. He actually did the real atonement up in heaven, in the heaven sanctuary. He also just did it out here for you so you could see it because he knew that you needed to see it to believe it. He cares about you that much. 
Do you realize that? He cares about you enough to show you, even though he didn't have to, but he knew that you would need it. So watch this. Take the goat inside. Then he would do something called malah, which is the Hebrew word for laying on of hands. So he would take the goat, he would lay his hands on the goat and impart all of the sins of the entire nation into the goat. Now the, the Talmud, uh, which is uh, ancient Hebrew, like it's like a commentary or it's, it's like explaining the further details of the rituals and the beliefs of the Hebrew priests and rabbis and what they would do at the time. So the Talmud says that when the priest would actually go and lay hands on the goat to impart the sins of humanity, of all of the nation of Israel, that he would be so overwhelmed from the pressure of the weight of the sins of the community that when he would impart, that he had to turn away because he was so overwhelmed. It literally would look like this. The priest would go, lay hands, and he'd, he'd have to turn his head away because of the weight of the pressure of that sin. Now, doesn't it say in Scripture that when God the Father put the weight of sin on Christ, that he too had to turn away from Christ. And Jesus cried out, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? The Father had to turn his head. When they saw this, they would have said, is this Yom Kippur? Is this the day when God forgets everything? Is this the day when he releases all our sins? Is this that happening right now? The next thing that happens is the press. So the press was where the priest, they, now listen, the, here's the idea. The priest really, really wanted to make sure that all the sins got into the goat. So the priest would grab, he would, he would lay down on top of the goat and actually like squeeze the goat. And like, you know, like this is <laughs> to make sure all the sins get into the goat, right? I know. That's what they would do. Now, <laughs> Now, you've probably heard this preach, right? The, the, the word Gethsemane means olive press or oil press, right? The oil press. And so when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane going to the cross, right? What does he say? He's praying now. He's crying out to God. He's saying, I'm pressed. I'm crushed by the weight of this burden, right? Like as he's going in, the weight of this burden, it's crushing me to the point of death the crushing. Jesus is telegraphing. He's saying, I'm demonstrating Yom Kippur right here, right now for you. This is the day when God forgets everything. What happens next? Well, next, the, uh, the priest would then take the goat, right, after he did the press, and he would actually, you know, take the, take the goat, and he would pull the head of the goat back, and he would cry out in a loud voice. And on exactly the ninth hour, by the way, exactly the ninth hour, the priest would cry out so everybody could hear, it is finished. It is finished. And then he would slice the throat of the goat. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And it says he gave up his spirit to the father. It is finished. Now, if you don't know the Hebrew culture, then it's just like, okay, he finished the job. But like, he's telegraphing Yom Kippur. He's showing them like, hey, I know that you know what these rituals are, and I know that you'll know what this means. It's finished. So then the priest slices the throat of the goat, and he catches the blood in this like cone-shaped container, 
right? And then he would do this interesting thing. He would swirl it and swirl it and swirl it because uh, he believed that if the blood congealed, then it would no longer be alive. And the blood had to be living in order to make a good sacrifice. So the blood, because the life of, you know, is in the blood and that was the whole thing. So he would take it and this is what he would do. He would run over while stirring this thing and he would run over to the Ark of the Covenant to be able to sprinkle the blood onto the Ark and he would be shouting this, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. And he would say this, don't touch me because for I have not yet applied the blood of the offering. I've not yet applied the blood of the sacrifice. Don't touch me, don't touch me because he knows he needs to be clean in order to offer the blood. What did Jesus say after he resurrected from the dead and he met the two women on the road and they went to approach him and he said, don't touch me, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to the father. Don't touch me, don't touch me. Because he knows that he hasn't yet gone to the Father to officiate the sacrifice in heaven. The blood of the sacrifice. Like we saw in Hebrews. He's telegraphing Yom Kippur. To Hebrews, they read this and when they understand it, listen, this is why Jesus, when he, like during this time, he had to appear to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he had to say, listen, let me like show you in all the scripture how everything was actually pointing to me. And he showed them all this stuff, Right? All this stuff is like, hey, it was actually pointing to me. They're like, oh my gosh. Like it was Yom Kippur the whole time. Like they're starting to get it. It's important that we get it. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. So then what the priest would do is they'd sprinkle the blood seven times, right? And then of course, now their hands are like drenched in goat blood. You know, not a pretty sight. Now, remember, uh, you've probably heard it preached... um, what they would do is they would tie a little rope around your ankle, the high priest, with a little bell, and they'd listen for the ting-ding, to make sure that you didn't get struck dead. <laughs> so, uh, so if you successfully, you know, accomplish the sacrifice, and, uh, and you walk out, you know, basically what they would do is they wanted to check to make sure you weren't a ghost, to make sure, like, you actually, like, successfully made the sacrifice, and you didn't die. And so what the priest would do is he would go and wash his hands, Right? And after washing his hands, he would take his hands and present his hands for inspection by the people so that the people could look at his hands and see that it is indeed flesh and that he's not a ghost. They're very superstitious in this time, right? But that's literally what they would do. Well, what did Jesus do after he resurrected? He showed himself to his disciples and they thought he was a ghost. And so he presented his hands and said, look at my hands and see that I am flesh and that it is actually me and I'm not a ghost. I'm actually back from the dead. He's telegraphing Yom Kippur. And like, do you see the correlation here? God wants to make absolutely certain that they know what he's doing. There's no mistake. It's incredible. But that's just the first goat. There's another goat. The goat for Azazel, right? So verse 20, when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. Everyone say all. All All means all. Yes, even that one. (laughs) all their sins, and he put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away, take it away, into the wilderness, in the care of watch someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. Now, it's interesting, right? Because I thought the sins were already taken care of inside the tabernacle. 
right? With the blood and all that stuff. Like I thought it was already done. Yes, but God cares about your conscience. So he's going to do another one in sight of all the people so they can see a visual representation of what's taking place so that their conscience is clear. He cares about both guys. It's like, yeah, it was already done, but also I need to show you so that you believe it because I care about how you feel. So watch, here's the, the process for the goat of Azazel. The goat was brought out publicly in front of the entire assembly so everyone can see it. Malah, again, you lay hands on the goat, right? And do the, the thing. And then now they, did, uh, they took a scarlet thread, a wool thread, and they would take it and wrap it around and tie it over the head of the goat, right? And this represented the sins of the people. And so the, the priest would actually tie it over there and he would proclaim, Behold, O Israel, your sin. Behold, O Israel, your sin. And that sounds a little familiar too, right? Because what did they put on the head of Jesus? A crown of thorns. And when the thorns dig into his scalp, what comes out? Red. He's just like the Yom Kippur goat for Azazel. The sins are seen wrapped around his head. Behold, O Israel, your sin. Then he would take the goat and walk it through the crowd in public spectacle, declaring, Behold, O Israel, your sin is being removed as far as the east is from the west. They would declare that. Then they would hand the goat to a man who was appointed, and then that man would take a piece of the cord and cut a piece of the cord and hang it over the door to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, so that everyone could see it very clearly. Then they would take, the man who was appointed would take the goat and would lead it and walk it out of the community, out towards the wilderness, to the very edge and release it so that it could go. Take it away. Azazel. Right? Then he would come back and, uh, well, before we get there. So one, one of the things that happened one time is uh, the goat like they released it. And then a couple of weeks later, the goat like managed to find its way back to the camp. <laughs> and the people freaked out because it's like their sins are coming back, you know? <laughs> and they're like, I thought we were over with this. And so then uh, what they started doing is they started taking the goat and throwing it over the edge of a cliff. <laughs> it was really sad. But I mean, what, I mean, come on, how would you react, right? It's like, my sins are back. No, you know? So, so they took it really seriously. By the way, this is, I don't know if, how many of you've heard of that phrase, um, don't let them get your goat. But it's a phrase that means like, don't let them bring up your failures. Don't let them bring up your past regrets, right? Don't bring the goat back into the camp. Don't let somebody take that goat that you released and bring it back and make you feel the weight of guilt and shame all over again. And by the way, don't you do that for somebody else. Don't bring somebody else's goat back either. Because yeah, their sin was also on that goat, just like yours. So uh, let it stay out there, you know, throw it over the edge of a cliff so that it can't come back. <laughs> right? Amen. Don't let them get your goat. So they would take the goat, they release it into the desert or over the cliff. And, uh, and the next thing, this is really interesting. I did not know this. But um, in the Talmud, they, they said that every year on Yom Kippur, a miracle would take place where the cord, remember they cut the cord and they hung it on the door? The cord would turn white. It was red and it would suddenly turn white the moment that all this was done. And that way, the people, I mean, they, can you imagine? I mean, imagine the palpable tension. They're all staring at the cord. They're like, is it going to turn white? Is it going to turn white? Is it going to turn white? And it turns white. And they're like, oh, it worked. 
The sins, my regrets for the entire year are gone. They're gone. I don't have to think about them anymore. I don't have to worry about them anymore. I don't have to have them keep coming back to my remembrance anymore. It's gone for the whole year. Like that's to be celebrated. That's good news. Gosh, I remember one time uh, I shared this story in the first service. Um, I have a student, uh, had a student who, uh, he was an international Chinese student and he'd never heard the gospel before. And so I was, you know, teaching him the gospel and preaching all this to him. And, uh, and, and he, he couldn't understand it. He's like, but what about like all the bad stuff? Like, what about the things that you do that are wrong? What about your sins? You know, like, like he, he didn't get it. And I kept explaining, like, no, like Jesus took it all away, like forever. It's gone. It's like completely gone. Jesus already took care of it. Like you're forgiven. And his response, you know, this, this like international Chinese student who'd never heard this before, he's like, well, that's good news. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's really good news. <laughs> It's the good news, right? So can you imagine? Imagine their response. Now, now also remember this. They couldn't do anything. Yet. They, they're, they're not allowed to do any work. So, so while this is happening, they watch the cord turn white, and they have to stand really still and wait for this whole thing to take place. It takes a long time to walk a goat all the way out to the edge of the wilderness, you know? So they're like, we want to celebrate, but we can't celebrate yet. We're waiting. And so then the priest will come back. And the way that they know that they can start celebrating is the priest comes and there's this big chair where the priest would, would sit. And so the priest would come and he would sit down in the chair. And the moment that the priest sat down, they would know Yom Kippur is done and we can start celebrating. And the people would go wild and celebrate. Yeah, woohoo! Like they'd be praising, they'd be dancing, they'd be worshiping because the thread turned white. The goat is gone. The priest sat down. It's finished. It's done. It's taken care of. And it was cause for celebration, as it should be, right? It's our, like our worship is our reasonable service unto him for what he's done because he's good, right? Now watch this. This is wild. Okay, when Jesus was arrested and he was brought before Pilate, you guys remember? And you all seen the movie, right? The Passion of the Christ and all that. It says, um, when, when he was before Pilate, Pilate was asking the people, what do you want me to do with him, this man Jesus? And what are they saying? Right, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But it's not all they said. If you read John chapter 19, verse 14 and 15, this is what they say. Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Take him away. Take him away. They're Hebrews. What's their word for take him away? Azazel. What are they chanting? Azazel. Azazel. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Crucify him. It's Yom Kippur, guys. Jesus knew this. They didn't realize it at the time. But they're enacting, they're reenacting the goat for Azazel. They're reenacting Yom Kippur. What else happened? Remember, someone was given charge over the goat for Azazel to walk it out of the camp. What did Jesus say to Pilate in John 19? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You think that you have charge over me because of your authority, but my father placed you and appointed you in charge to be the one to lead me to the slaughter. Now remember in Matthew 27, 
Remember what happens with the, with the priest after, the, you know, after they lead the goat all the way out, they come back, says they have to wash their hands because now they're unclean. They just carry this goat that had all the sins of, you know, the entire camp for the whole year. And they're like, I need to wash my hands. So they wash their hands. Well, what did Pilate do? In Matthew 27, Pilate, it says, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. He washed himself of it. He's reenacting Yom Kippur. And then what happens? Well, after Jesus goes through the whole thing, we already read this in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for one, or he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's finished indeed. Our priest has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And newsflash, he's still sitting. He's still sitting. Seated on the throne. Listen, there's nothing that you can do to ever feel better about what you regret. You can only put your faith in God. It's only by faith. Only by faith. Only by faith in what he did. Only by faith in what he did. I have one more thing to share. Can we just go a little bit longer? Okay. In Luke chapter 22... We see verse 31. This is before Jesus is going to the cross. He's meeting with the disciples one last time. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now that, let's stop there for a second. What they would do is they would take grain and they would grind the grain and the wheat and the chaff. The chaff was like the hard outer shell. You know, like when you're eating oatmeal and you get the little hard bits, you're like, I can't eat this. Like that's chaff, you know, that's chaff. So the chaff is lightweight. So what they would do is they'd take it and toss it in a basket and they would allow a wind to come and blow and the chaff was light. And so it would blow away and the grain would fall down to the middle. So, so what they, they talked about this. There's other scriptures that talk about sifting as being like a way to separate the wheat from the chaff to see, is your faith genuine? Is it genuine? Are you going to be with the wheat or are you going to be the chaff that gets blown away by the winds of life, right? That shows whether your faith is genuine. So he's saying Satan has asked to sift all of you, all you disciples, as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Notice this. What did he say? He did not say, I've prayed that you wouldn't fail. He said, I prayed your faith wouldn't fail. He's like, look, and then he tells him, when you've turned back, like meaning, hey, when you fail, which you're going to, you're going to deny me three times, in fact. When you do, don't sweat it. Just repent. Don't do penance. Don't go, oh, oh, oh. Just believe. Put your faith in me that I'm your redeemer and that I've already taken care of it and come back and use your experience to strengthen your brothers. Faith. It's all about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say without penance, it's impossible to please God. No, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith. So that's why Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. Listen, God doesn't care if you fail. He cares if your faith fails. He already knows you're going to fail. He already knows. Newsflash, here's your prophetic word. You will fail. Sorry, it's true. 
But pray that your faith doesn't fail. Meaning when you fail, can you come back before the Father and say, Jesus, my faith in your blood washes me from my regrets, from my mistakes, from my sins, from my brokenness. And I know that I can come back into your presence, that I can come boldly before the throne of grace and not hold myself down and hold myself accountable for these things until I feel bad enough for long enough that maybe you'll think it's enough. Let your faith not fail. Let your faith not fail. Because look, we saw the picture of what it looks like when your faith does fail in Judas. Judas betrayed Christ too. Once, instead of three times like Peter, but his faith failed. Because Judas saw himself as irredeemable. See, both men had great regret. Great regret. They both regretted what they'd done. They both felt sorrow. They both felt guilt and shame. But only one had faith. And it's faith that actually washes you. Your regret does nothing. Your regret does nothing. You feeling bad and going into the prayer closet, oh, it does nothing. I'm sorry. It does nothing. Only your faith. Only your faith. It's always been and always will be your faith. It's only faith. Faith in the blood. Faith in what Jesus demonstrated for all time, for all history, for all people. Only faith. Only faith. It's always been faith. Always been faith. So what did we learn? Can I have the worship team come up, please? God cleanses not just our sin, but our sin consciousness. Both are necessary to enter the most holy place, as we know. It's important that we repent from our useless rituals that try to leverage our regret to feel better and hope that it's enough for God. You know that it says that our self-righteousness to God is like dirty rags? And when you really read what that means, right, that's a very sanitized version of what that means. Dirty rags literally means used menstrual cloths, used tampons. Seriously. Sorry for the graphic imagery, but that's what God says your self-righteousness is like. So when you're in your prayer closet, you're going, oh God, oh God, oh God, I hope I feel bad enough for long enough until you think it's enough. He's like, get your tampons away from me. Uh, seriously, get those dirty tampons away from me. I don't want it. Listen, I know it's funny, right? But, but listen, what you're basically doing when we do that is we're saying, take this blood instead of your son's blood. I think this is better than that blood that you shed yourself on the cross in your perfect sinless form. Mine's better. Stop it, guys. We need to stop it. We need to stop going with our self-righteousness and our useless rituals that just don't cut it and never will. They never have and they never will. God enacted Yom Kippur. The goat has left the camp. It's gone. It carried our sins. It carried our neighbor's sins. And our priest is sitting down. Let's live as if it's true. You stand to your feet, please. 
You've been listening to the Freedom House podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like more information about our house, please visit our website, fhus.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. See you next time. Thank you.